Nikki, do you know how to work these lights? Are they on a, like an areostat? Yeah, they're kind of blinding me. Do you know where they are? I don't even know where they are. Oh, great. <laughs> Put it up on the web. <laughs> Dennis, you take this out. <laughs> Yeah, that's better. That's better. Thanks. Uh, a little bit more up. Okay, that's good. Yeah. It's oh. <laughs> like glaring off that plastic. It was blinding me. Okay, now I can't see what I wrote. Oh, great. Okay. <clears throat> So what I wanted to speak about tonight and really um, came up in my mind after talking to people over the last few days is a very common theme, but one that I feel I've certainly never gotten it right, which is exactly the point. We don't, which is virya, the quality of virya. So as you probably know, it's often translated as energy or effort. But um, I just want to talk about some different translations and different ways we can understand and work with this quality in our moment-to-moment experience in our practice. Um, It's based in, in, in a sense of working with an understanding virya. It's kind of very important to know for oneself why one is practicing, why is one on the spiritual path, not in a in a broad way, but really, what's, what's the point? So in terms of the way I'm talking tonight, I'm using the Buddha's kind of description of uh, a free mind or a liberated heart and mind as being a mind, heart, that consciousness that is purified of clinging, that is free from greed or wanting, from a dosa, aversion, hatred, fear, and free from identification, from confusion that that's like an expression of why we practice, both in the long term but also moment to moment. So that gives rise to the motivation. And you'll see why I want to start by saying that. So virya, energy, essential, of course, essential to keep us moment to moment waking up on our path. And as, as I'm sure most of you know, it's one of the qualities that apparently, I haven't gone through all the suttas myself and counted, but apparently it's one of the qualities that the Buddha referenced most frequently. So it's really important for us to understand this accurately, and I really feel like mostly we don't understand it accurately. The most common translation is effort, right? Virya is effort, courageous, heroic effort. How do you feel? I don't mean I like it, I don't like it, not like that. But on on a subtle level, when the word effort goes through your mind, just notice what kind of connotations come with it. There's no right or wrong, and it may be different for different people, but just notice. I know for me, effort has the quality of doing, of trying, of achieving, of getting somewhere other than here. 
it's not actually the best description. It carries too much baggage, at least in English. Other descriptions or uh, definitions are, again, a quality of mental energy. Another description is this quality of attention, of presence, of not shrinking back, of uh, just a, a courage in the sense of a willingness to just be here. Not this kind of like, I don't want to be with this, that actually leads to both aversion and sloth and torpor. Um, It is kind of a not shrinking back, a courage, just a willingness no matter what it is. And patience, perseverance, much more useful in terms of how we can understand and work with this in our practice to think of virya as patience and perseverance rather than thinking of it as effort. But thinking altogether about it isn't that helpful. More talking about it in order to help us bring our attention into our experience and recognize virya when it's wise, when it's not. And that's what's interesting about this quality of virya, this is a mental factor, a quality in the mind. On its own, it's what's called ethically variable. It's not necessarily wholesome. It's not necessarily unwholesome. It depends on what other factors come together with the virya in the mind, in the citta at that moment, what's kind of motivating it. And when we don't realize it's ethically variable, how many times in practice are we putting out tremendous effort? We just think the more I put out, the better it is, because it's good no matter what. But that's not true. So tremendous Virya, energy, not shrinking back, willingness to show up. That's kind of the way I, I think about it, kind of courage, just the willingness to show up. It can, we can, it can be put out with an amazing amount of steadiness, of effort, using deliberately the word effort, but it is not necessarily wholesome. It really depends what goes with it. It can be for all variety of motivations. So I was just... I was watching the um, U.S. Open tennis the other day, watching these the, the guy, two guys in the finalist. Incredible virya, virya beyond anything I could even imagine just to get through the match, never mind their whole lives, you know, how much they work. And, and watching, um, watching the two guys play is really uh, an example of all these qualities I said of not shrinking back, of showing up, each point is new. You don't hold on to the past. You're really there. You're doing, you know, really huge virya. Is it wholesome? I don't really know. I don't know what their motivation was. You know, it could have varied from moment to moment. But it could be total greed. It could be complete, it's all about me. It could have been to win the two and a half million dollars. Yes. <laughs> you know, or it could have been aversion. It could, you know, it could be a lot of different things. Someone could put out, uh, like we see these movies, these caper movies, you know, tremendous virya steadiness to commit the perfect crime. Clearly, the motivation, you couldn't really say that was a wholesome factor, right? That's not wise virya in terms of... So if we think of it as just the energy put out to achieve a result, we're going down the wrong track. Take it to... um, Meditation, since that's hopefully what we're all doing here. 
<laughs> How much virya, steadfastness, patience and persistence, or downright effort is the mind putting out to make something different happen? Is that wise virya? Or how about sitting through enormous pain in the sitting, absolutely vowing, I will not move? Classically from outside, that's one of the, that person's really got some virya. They've really got some resolution. Resolution, that steadfastness, that willingness to do what we decide. But you don't know that. It's what is it paired with? It's quite possible to sit like a rock through enormous pain and internally every moment of that is fed by aversion, if not downright hatred. You know, I will not move no matter what. I will not move. And we're just looking, you know, it's willpower, a sense of me, me, me. That's not aversion, that's different. We're me, 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 being the perfect yogi, proving something. And if we don't notice what's motivating, what qualities, what mental factors are coming together with that effort, and that is effort, with that virya, we think we're really practicing on the road to freedom and all we're doing is feeding sense of self or feeding aversion or feeding desire. You get a sense of how really key it is to both get uh, familiar, more and more familiar with how we can play with this factor of virya, but even more to keep checking in the mind what's coming together with it, what's feeding it, because that's really the whole point, to see that willpower is not the same as resolution. Willpower is not the same thing as virya. Willpower is really driven by strong sense of self. Resolution is its different from virya. It's one of the paramis, one of the um, wholesome qualities of mind and heart that we can develop in our practice, in our life, that also is said the Buddha the prior, before he became the Buddha in all his lifetimes, the Bodhisattva, was cultivating these ten different qualities, which I won't go into because that's you know a whole talk. But resolution is that quality of clarity and firmness, you could say, that, so that the Buddha-to-be Buddha displayed. The classic example is that night after all his six years of strenuous work, he sat down under the Bodhi tree and said, I will not get up until I become awakened. Right? Let my bones and sinews dry up, right? I will not get up. There's two things I'd like to point out about that. One, that resolution is not desire or aversion. It's not willpower. I'm so great, I won't get up. It really comes from wisdom. The second piece of wisdom about resolution is it's based in reality. I always like to think he knew which night to sit down under that tree and say, okay, I'm not going to get up. He didn't do it for the six years prior. You know, he was ready then. You know? So you, know, you could sit here and say, this is a resolution. I will not get up until I become a, a, a Samasam Buddha, perfectly enlightened Buddha. Now, I don't know where any of your minds are at. That might be a resolution from wisdom. It might be unwise effort based on desire or self-identification. How do you know? You're the only one who can know. We keep remembering to check back what qualities of mind are in the mind that's paying attention. It's putting out the effort. 
It's, this isn't a big thinking thing. It's just remembering to check back. Virya as a path factor, as a, a, the wise virya that we use in our practice, needs to come together with wisdom. And that's something that for years I didn't, I mean, I did not that I didn't understand, I just didn't think of it. You just think, you know, it's not going well enough, try harder. We're not getting what we want to happen, push more, do it more, be more steady. But if we don't check back and see what's fueling that wisdom, panya, understanding, then we can really get ourselves all knotted up and not quite understand why. Because we think, well, I'm doing the best I can. You know, very sincerely, we are doing the best we can. But we're forgetting to look and see what's fueling this best we can. So wisdom, or at least the mind that is not being motivated, as I said, by wanting, by aversion, by self-interested confusion. And it's not really that hard to tell. This is not like a big, you know, mystery. It's just that we're so familiar with these that we can forget to check. So, for example, this is the way Eutasiania describes it, as you see. Check the mind that's paying attention. This isn't so hard. As you're practicing, whether you're being with a breath or walking or drinking your tea, whatever, as you're paying attention to what's going on, in the back of the mind there, are you wanting something to happen? Are you expecting something to happen that isn't happening now? And that can be very subtle, but check and see. Are you trying to create something? trying to get your practice to look a certain way, wanting some experience, or even ever so subtly trying to nudge things in a certain direction. That's greed, just flat-out greed. It doesn't matter how subtle, how gross it is. And that's not a judgment. It's like, great, see the greed. In the moment of seeing it, the mind isn't feeding it. Ah, that's greed. Right then, you know, it moves back into wise attention. It moves back into wise mindfulness. Okay, are you trying to make something stop happening? Or ever so subtly judging, this isn't supposed to be here. Or practicing harder, more steadily, or whatever, but because you're dissatisfied with how things are going. You know, it isn't quite the way it was on that last retreat. I better amp it up a little bit. Or I better do something to get rid of this so that it can get back to where it was before or what I read about or what I heard about or whatever. So that's aversion, ill will, anger, hatred. Just That's all. Just notice it. And if on the third level, basically, it has different ways. One is we don't know what's going on. You don't, even, you don't even know where you are. That's kind of obvious that that's delusion. On another level, it's like you're trying to figure it out. You don't know what to do, but you really feel that you should do something, and you're kind of going through the catalog of all the skillful means and trying to figure out what to do to make it right. Just settle down. Notice what's happening right now. So how does kind of right energy, reviria, how can it feel when we're working with it, when we're connecting with it? And of course, there's a wide range. How can it show up? 
So it's not forcing. It's not pushing. It's not aiming towards another goal. But it's simply, uh, it's not trying to manipulate in any way whatsoever. And manipulating can be very subtle. But it's just, and this is in Vipassana now, for example, but it's, it works the same way in shamatha and one-pointedness, but just different objects. So in Vipassana, for example, all the six sense objects are naturally arising. Whether you're using the breath as, a, as to begin with, that's physical, that's the body. If you're using sound, that's hearing. Using the whole body, that's also physical, the body. But all the six sense objects, so seeing, smelling, tasting, the body, hearing, <laughs> and of course the mind, thinking, the whole range of what goes on in the mind. They're just naturally occurring. That's just nature. We're not here to make something different occur. We're not here to have a better object. That's just what's happening. The only job of Virya is to be present, aware, to know what's happening, already happening by itself. So consciousness, the moment of where the the sense door and the sense object come together and there's the, just this, the bare knowing of it, of a hear, of a sound, hearing, of a smell, smelling. That's going on every moment, as long as we're conscious, right? We're not in a coma. I mean, who knows when you're in a coma? But that's going on every moment. That's happening by itself. Awareness and energy, awareness is the knowing that that's happening. It's happening. Well, we can be conscious without awareness, right? Like if you're, you know, times when you're driving and suddenly you wake up and realize you don't, you don't know where you were for the last two miles, but somehow you're still on the road and you followed the stop signs and everything. Did that ever happen to anybody? It's a little spooky. Oh, that's consciousness without awareness. When you're lost in thought here, as opposed to being aware of thought, and you suddenly wake up and go, oh, I was gone for 10 minutes. But you could actually say what you were thinking about. Sometimes, I'm not advocating this, but sometimes people then amuse themselves by going back, you know, tracing it back. That's another 10 minutes gone, right? But tracing back everything you thought about. So there was consciousness. But there wasn't the awareness, that purity of awareness that knows this is what's happening now. Right? So that awareness... That's awareness. With wisdom means it doesn't have greed, hatred, or avert, greed, hatred, or delusion in it. And the virya, the courage, the energy, is that willingness to just meet it moment after moment after moment. Not to push into change and not to shrink back because it's not what we like, but just whatever's arising, awareness notices it, and virya is just right there with the awareness. They come together, meeting it, meeting it, meeting it. Receptive in terms of just receiving what's happening, not in there trying to fix it and change it. That's why working with hearing at times is a lovely way to kind of uh, just sit and be with hearing, hearing for a while. It's nice with the insects. Several people have mentioned that because it keeps going. It gives you time to really just drop into this quality of real presence, but it's quite receptive. 
really there, aware and knowing, but that manipulating, that trying to fix or do isn't part of it. So playing with hearing for some people gives a real sense of that receptiveness. Receptive, but also courageous. That willingness just to show up, not to shrink back, no matter what it is. So they go together, and this is the delicate dance of appropriate virya that we tend to easily keep falling one way or the other, right? Even with the best intentions. Receptive, receptive, just there's absolutely nothing to do. It's all happening by itself. (laughs) And there's the receptive, but there's not quite the connecting, not quite the showing up. The energy kind of falls out the floor. That also happens when one is, is working with concentration in terms of calming the mind, being very steady, always coming back to one particular deliberately chosen object, like sensation of breath at the nose or metta meditation. Because the mind gets calmer and calmer and calmer, often the energy falls out, the virya falls out. It's just really calm and kind of going on by itself. And that quality of not shrinking back, of showing up, starts to just fall away. So at that time, there's receptivity, there's calmness, but there's not enough of the connecting energy, the courageous aspect. And so we need to notice that. And for us, what well, for me, maybe not for you guys, what can be so difficult is how to cultivate bring in that courageous connecting energy without doing it from wanting or aversion. It's so easy, isn't it? We've spaced out a little and go, oh, no, I'm spaced out. Get back to the breath. Connect, connect. Aim and sustain. What does it feel like, you know? And, oh, now, how come I don't feel more balanced? How come, you know, it's like, oh, duh. So we need to keep checking. It's very tricky how from wisdom to let wisdom do the work, not wanting do the work, not pushing or striving do the work. And this is not our habit. It's not for most of us the habit of our mind. We let wanting, aversion, pushing, expectation, self-whipping, whatever it is, do the work, and we confuse that with virya. So that's on the one side. Yeah, of too receptive. And the other, of course, is this trying, trying, doing, doing, and my practice isn't clear enough, it isn't good enough. So I need to, for example, try to see the breath more clearly. It's too dull. Has anyone ever had that sense? The sensations aren't clear enough. If I try to see them a little more, aim and sustain, aim and sustain. Get the things clearer, you know? or I'm getting lost in thought, and I will not do that anymore. No more thinking. You know, you know it, this is what our mind does. And then we say, oh, well, she said, don't do that. So, okay, no more, no more, no more thinking. I won't do that anymore. I'm just going to be receptive, and everything will balance out. Right? It's like it's a trip. As long as we're caught in trying to figure it out that way, it's an endless spinning cycle. When you notice it's getting into this, out of balance, what do I do? How do I fix it? Is it too receptive? Is it too strong? Eh. Back up. Open up the field of attention, which I'm, by which I mean don't try to narrow down so precisely on how does it feel the object. 
open up, feel the body, the mind, and just notice, oh, I really want this to get better. Oh, duh, wanting. And you don't have to fix it. You don't have to change it. You just have to notice it. That's what's so amazing with uh, awareness and wisdom. The wisdom, we see enough what's going on. The wisdom actually understands and makes the changes. It doesn't have to come from pushing. This takes trust. It takes trust. But I, I am sure, really sure, that all of you have had this experience over and over in different ways not just about virya, but about many things, that when we're willing and able to just meet what's arising with awareness, with balanced energy, not shrinking back, with this awareness that isn't colored by wanting, by aversion, we see clearly the wisdom arises out of the steadiness, the continuity of seeing, the continuity of awareness. So that's really how working with virya, how the virya strengthens and deepens and then supports the deepening of wisdom and all the other factors, not through pushing harder to see more clearly, but through this gentle, steady connectedness, moment after moment after moment. It's the continuity of awareness, the continuity, the perseverance, aspect of virya, the patient aspect, that is really the key. It's just, and in some way, people, all of you who practice a lot, we know that, but in another way, we can easily get sucked into how good was my sitting, how was my walking, the time in between, I am sort of, you know, halfway, pay attention, whatever, you know, but that just moment to moment, noticing what's going on in the mind, without a huge effort, so it's not exhausting. It's quite possible then to keep just noticing moment after moment after moment, all day. That's the resolution. Not that I will do it no matter what, but that willingness to say, you know, I just, when I notice, I don't know what's happening, I'm willing to come back. And as soon as you recognize you don't know what's happening, you are back. That's the thing. There's not a where to go back to. It's here. So that's the aspect, the steadiness, the steadiness of noticing that strengthens the whole practice. That's really what develops the steadiness of virya, and it's from that steadiness of virya and clarity of seeing, moment after moment after moment, that samadhi really builds. That the whole seeing, the whole steadiness of awareness really gathers a momentum that doesn't come from your willpower, It doesn't come from greed or dissatisfaction. It comes from, you know, how one moment of mindfulness is the proximate cause for the next moment of mindfulness to arise. One moment of virya, of just this receptive, connected, courageous attention, is the proximate cause for the next one to arise. So at first we have to remember, oh yeah, right, just what's happening now. That's the extent of it. That level of effort. Oh, what's happening now? You feel your body as you sit there. It's not hugely effortful. You feel your crossed arms. 
You notice tiredness in the mind. You don't have to do anything about any of it. You just notice it. Oh, that's not so hard. I could do that the next moment. I could do that the next moment. And slowly or quickly or however long in relation to what is slow or quick anyway, a momentum starts to build where you know the first day or two that you're on a retreat is like you're just dragging yourself along and trying to find your body when you're sitting here. And a week in, two weeks in, yes, stuff's still happening. It's not all, you know, the way you want it. Probably never will be. But it's getting easier. The remembering to know what I'm doing starts to happen more and more by itself. The sense of huge swings of exhaustion and pushing too hard and up and down, that starts to even out a bit. And that's happening by itself. And also the sense of trying to push and see more clearly, that doesn't work. But the steadiness, the continuity, the moment-to-moment-to-moment Awareness and virya connectedness showing up by itself. And I know you've all seen this. The awareness starts to notice more. Things start to get clearer. We start to, without even looking for it, notice more subtlety of what's going on in the mind, what's going on in the body, really seeing suffering and what's creating it. Because that's really the point. What, what, what fuels our virya, our willingness to show up moment after moment, isn't right virya, isn't wanting something to happen, but the quality of interest, you know, kind of investigation. What's going on? How does the mind work? How is suffering created in this moment? How does it come to an end in this moment? What's happening right now? With the intention just to understand out of interest, not to judge, not to fix, not to make something different happen, just to notice and see how it works. And then it's really, that's when intensive practice gets to be fun. Because we're not having to fight with what's happening. We're just willing to be there and see, oh, what's the mind doing right now? I'm feeling all locked up and pushed and stressed. Instead of running down a list and judging ourselves, we just turn around and look at the mind. Oh, dissatisfaction. The breath ought to be more steady. Look at that. Look at how much suffering is coming from that. And there's nothing else you need to do. Just noticing that. This is from Nisargadatta. It's kind of an intense way of saying it, but I, I like it. It's different. He says, you people want to become supermen overnight. You know, we're all like so much. Stay without ambition, without the least desire, vulnerable, unprotected, uncertain, completely open to and welcoming life as it happens, without the selfish conviction that all must yield you pleasure or profit, material or so-called spiritual. That, to me, is a good um, description of awareness with right virya. Really present, open, without desire or the conviction that this is to somehow yield me profit. I'm not saying that's easy, but that's the sense. That's the sense of how we practice. Virya isn't here to say, 
this is good, this is bad, and the more we're aware, the better everything gets. It doesn't work that way. It just totally doesn't work that way. So from that sense, I want to move into the courage, a little more about the courage, the not shrinking back. Because often what shows up in especially, well, in our life too, but we'll talk about intensive retreats since that's where we are, what shows up so often are difficult experiences. And the difficult experiences rarely, sometimes, but rarely, fit into most people's uh, conceptions or preconceived notions about what's good practice, why I'm here, what awareness and, and effort and energy are about, how I'm supposed to purify the mind, all of that. What shows up as a function of retreat are the habits of our mind that cause suffering. That's part of, if that didn't show up, the retreat wouldn't be working. If that didn't show up on the retreat, we wouldn't have a chance to explore, to understand, to meet with awareness and virya rather than just being run by these habits as we do in our normal life. But usually, usually, when these strong habits show up, we meet, at first at least, the tendency is to meet them with the same, the same habits of mind that we meet them in daily life. Not to recognize that, that this is a chance for us to step out of our unconscious patterns of feeding these afflictive emotions. And that's usually how they show up, as afflictive emotions. There's a Pachul Rinpoche, who was a, a Tibetan teacher talking about the different, he's also was talking about the paramis, and he was talking about the parami of patience, which he went into in some detail. But one of the lines that he uses is that we need to cultivate patience to bear hardship for the Dhamma. And I'm thinking in this way of patience as virya, that c- courageous willingness to show up, not to shrink back or weigh or push back or hide from, whatever it is that shows up. This patience to be with hardships for the Dhamma. As Ajahn Chah says, as suffering that leads to more suffering, and there's suffering that leads to the end of suffering. It's all about the attitude of mind, of attention, how we meet that suffering in any particular moment. And so this balanced virya Virya that's fed by wisdom is so key in meeting and working with this stuff. So these habits of mind, and I I really want to talk about it just because in the last couple days it's coming up for quite some people. No big surprise. But somehow we are surprised. It's always amazing. No matter how much we've practiced or looked at our minds, it can still be a surprise when we getting in, settling into the retreat, or we've been here for some time, and suddenly, it's like just the pond settles down for a few days, and suddenly, boom, all the stuff starts coming up to the surface. One of my teachers used to say that in the light of awareness, all of the snakes come up out of their holes. 
That's not a problem. That's not something wrong. It is a great place to practice with cultivating and recognizing um, the attitude in mind that we meet these difficulties with. What's right virya? What's right awareness? So, in some, some ways these habits show up are in really obvious afflictive emotions, right? Like intense desire or strong fear or habits that we know we carry from our life of great resistance or self-judging, um, of contempt, of blame. Or, you know, all the stuff that we have past trauma, uh, self-distrust, a lot of anger, a lot of sadness and grief, sorrow, guilt, you name it, right? All of our normal stuff. This at least we notice that it's happening. We may think it's a mistake, but it's hard not to notice that they're coming up. But the thing, and this is in the gross form, but these same habits of mind can also show up. uh, They're not really subtle, but they're more hidden. They can show up in the way that we're relating to our practice. And this is often where we don't notice them and get really caught in wrong effort. So, for example, these big habits that I mentioned, judging, comparing with past retreats, wanting things to be different, a real underlying sense of resistance, for example, all these different ones, anger at whatever's going on, real sorrow over how one's behaved in the past. On one level, there's a whole personal story. There's a personal history. The emotions feel very much about me. On another level, just get a little bigger and notice what's the energy in the mind fueling these, and it really will break down to desire, aversion, or fear, confusion, delusion. It's all about me in big picture. And I'm not saying that we should just wipe out and not pay attention to the emotions, not at all. I'll get into that in a minute. But I think for me it's been very helpful to get bigger and notice I'm all involved in my resistance and why and back to the past and it's been like this and and not noticing. As I do that, as I'm just getting into exploring it and the story and it's about me and I see how it starts and it goes to there. and It feels like good mindfulness. But if I check back in the mind that's paying attention, there can be, for example, in my own personal case, a really strong motivation in that description of craving, of clinging. I'm really wanting to see what it's all about, and I'm wanting to figure it out so that I don't have to deal with it anymore. So craving fed by aversion. And if I don't look back at the attitude in the mind and notice that craving then what I'm taking for as wise mindfulness and wise energy, looking and seeing and naming and noting, is actually only feeding craving. You get a sense of that? It's, when you turn around and look, it's not so subtle, but we get so engrossed in exploring and looking at the object that we forget to turn around and see, is this effort, is this virya, is this mindfulness being fueled by wisdom, by interest, or by wanting or aversion. We just don't have to ask that, but just keep checking. 
Just keep checking. Just keep checking. And that's all you have to do. You don't have to fix it. I really found this to make a profound difference in the way that I'm able to just be with what's happening in a much freer and clearer way, moment after moment after moment. And, as I said, wisdom starts to do the work, not pushing. So, for example, in a big picture of working with, well, I wasn't even trying to work with anger. I was walking, just taking a walk. I wasn't on retreat. And I started thinking about politics and different political figures and the war in Iraq and all kinds of stuff and getting really angry. I, really could, I was watching it happen, feeling the anger, and of course the sense of justification, appropriate, it's appropriate to be anger, which of course just keeps the anger going. So I was really noticing that and feeling it and very present, mindful in the way of able to notice and say everything that was happening, but not really noticing what was feeding it. And then at one point, just paying attention, paying attention, I turned around and noticed, oh, this is just anger feeding anger. That wasn't with any judgment. That was just noticing. And in that moment of seeing the wisdom did its own work, in that moment of seeing, oh, I don't want to add more anger to the world. It just stopped. My opinion didn't stop. You know, the sense that things should change didn't stop, but that anger fueling itself as soon as the mindfulness just saw, oh, this is just anger fueling itself with wisdom, the wisdom just said, don't need this anymore, and it stopped. doesn't mean it doesn't come back. But you get a sense of how the, the wisdom does the work. It's very different from, this is anger, feeding more anger, and I don't want to do this anymore. It's really bad, and I'm a bad person because I'm feeding the anger, so I'm not going to be angry anymore. Stop it. Loving kindness. May you be peaceful. May you be happy, you know? And it's just spinning, spinning, spinning. I'm not saying every time that awareness with balanced energy sees something that's unwholesome, it just naturally poofs away, would that it were so. But it starts to happen more and more. But also you get a sense of what balanced virya is. So these habits can be strong emotions like that, but they can also show up in how we're relating to practice in the way that I talked about before huge amount of judging that what's happening isn't right, it could be better, huge amount of remembering and wanting from some other time, huge amount of, in in terms of if you're doing a a more kind of focused, one-pointed practice, coming back to the breath, coming back to metta, how often is that bringing the mind back done with wanting? How often? I talked to someone who spent two months practicing a very, very strict shamatha, one-pointed meditation style, just come back to here, come back to here with Paok. And this person told me later, after it was over, I said, wow, I'm looking now and I see I spent that whole month practicing with craving, not noticing that every time I was coming back to the breath, it was from craving. So you might get somewhat focused But it's not balanced samadhi. It's from craving. And that's what's being fed in the mind. So that's why I said at the beginning, when we talk about the the kind of, not the goal, but the understanding that fuels our practice, that fuels our virya, if it's that understanding that it's purifying the heart and mind, purifying from craving, from aversion, from confusion, 
then we know it doesn't matter what's happening. If you can get to some really exalted state of heart and mind, but you've been feeding craving that whole time, what good is it? Or you're going through the day here and you're noticing the mind and you're noticing what's happening and there's that courageous showing up and you're having no great experiences. You're just sitting and walking and drinking your tea and going out for a walk, but you're really noticing. And the momentum of noticing is growing. And the getting caught and reactive and pushing and trying to make something happen is lessening. That's where the purification is really starting to happen. That's where the strength of wisdom and awareness, mindfulness, and virya are all coming together. So looking back at what's going on in the mind and less focused on evaluating ourselves by object. But I do want to go back to the fact that in terms of bigger emotional um, experiences, like the snakes coming out of the hole, sometimes that's going to happen on retreat and it really isn't a problem. In fact, often it's uh, kind of a normal, useful circumstance. <laughs> this is, I, I found this, I haven't read this for years from Ram Dass. <laughs> but it's a great line. He says, as, you, as your mind further purifies, as your heart further purifies, the impurities, the greed, the confusion, the difficult emotions will seem grosser and larger. So you need to understand that it's not that you're getting more caught in the negativity, in the illusion. It's just that you're seeing it more clearly. You're feeling it more vividly. You know, It's really important to see, wow, that's interesting. Let me understand how suffering is created, not thinking, oh, God, I'm really falling apart. It's getting worse and worse. We're seeing it more clearly. So the fact that these difficult patterns arise, that's just the effect of our past karma, the past habits of our mind, the way we're used to relating in our life, the habits. No blame, that's just what's happening. How it's met in this present moment of awareness, that's the place That's the moment where we can see what's being fed and what's being starved, which is a way the Buddha talked a lot. So when really a difficult emotion, say grief, comes up, and it's met with, oh, no, grief again. What's the matter with me? I've got to figure it out. I thought I worked through this. I've been to therapy for 10 years. Oh, that's feeding aversion. That's feeding resistance. That's pushing it away. That's shrinking back. That's not virya. I was like, oh, grief. It's like this. That willingness just to be there. That's wisdom. That's virya with wisdom. And so I want to just offer some some of you who I I got the feeling it would just be helpful. Um, Just a little bit of technique. If you're not used to meeting uh, difficult emotions as part of the practice, not as something to jump over and get back to practice, not as something to get rid of, that the purifying means they never come, but as the next arising object. So first is just the recognition. Michelle made up this little acronym, RAIN, R-A-I-N, which if that helps, use it. So that when a difficult emotion comes, or a happy one too, but we don't usually struggle with those, we get attached to those. We don't even know they're there. So recognition is helpful. Oh, guilt, it's like this. Happiness, desire, is like this. 
Self-exaltation is like this, whatever it is. That's all recognizing. The name can help, but the name is to bring us into the experience, not to say, oh, guilt is like this. That's nice. Guilt, guilt, guilt. Let me go back to the breath. Like guilt. Recognize, and the A is for allowing, accepting, just letting it be, being in non-contention. Oh, guilt feels like this. Accepting, allowing it to be, to live its life. It's just really like the weather. It's, emotions feel like so much like the weather to me. You're just sitting here, minding your own business, and suddenly, whoom, a huge load of sadness comes in, and you're like, what? What? How did, I'm just, you know, practicing here. Sadness, heaviness, and then we get into all our reactions. Okay, sadness comes in. Just like the fog, just like the rain. Recognize, allow it. The eye is for investigating or just noticing how it is. I don't mean thinking about it. What does it mean to me? And that's not investigation. Just recognizing, feeling how it is. Guilt feels like this. There may be physical sensations. There may be like a coloring in the mind. There may be thoughts coming and going with it, all kind of like the package, you know, that we call guilt. We're allowing it, investigating it, not to make it go away. Simply with virya to be present without flinching from what's happening. Receptive, allowing, connected. Oh, yeah, guilt is like this. And the end is for, it's just nature. Sometimes I'm feeling guilty. Sometimes you're feeling guilty. This is the nature of guilt. Your particular personal story, everybody's guilt has a particular personal story. That's the nature of guilt. Yours isn't like any better or worse or more personal than anybody else's. So to me, that really, oh, there's this cloud, the rain, the fog, the sun, the happiness. It comes. We recognize, allow, investigate. It's just the nature. It goes. And that's how the wisdom comes. You don't have to, like, tear it apart to see impermanence. If you just stay moment after moment steady, connected, You'll notice it wasn't here before, and now it's here. You'll notice it's really here, and now it's gone. And I promise it'll come and it'll go. Everything will come and it'll go. We don't have to try and see that, figure it out. Just be here, meet it, steady, and that shows up by itself. So that's really the um, the quality of um, awareness, virya, and wisdom. It can sometimes be with very subtle experience, but it's just as valid with the huge, difficult emotions that are coming up. Either one. It doesn't matter. So just noticing when you're involved in some kind of um, reactivity, in some kind of trying to change, in the feelings of dissatisfaction with yourself, with the emotion, with how your practice is going, back up a little bit. Open up a little bit. Just notice what's in the mind that's paying attention. Just what's in the mind that's paying attention. And when you notice that, you're already connected again. Ah, this is wanting. In that moment, we've stepped out of our normal habits of reacting with aversion or self-justification to these big patterns, and we're shifting the karma. You know, instead of feeding the aversion, 
feeding the self-identification, we're feeding wisdom, feeding awareness, feeding virya. And that's really huge. Maybe not in each little moment, but the, as the momentum builds, as the wholesomeness builds, this is really how the mind purifies itself. So I just want to end with a quotation, if I can find it, from Pema Chodron in this way. She's so pithy. I love how she says things. We think if we just meditated enough or jogged enough or ate perfect food, everything would be perfect. But from the point of view of someone who is awake, that's death. Seeking security or perfection, rejoicing and feeling confirmed and whole, self-contained and comfortable, is some kind of death. It doesn't have any fresh air. There's no room for something to come in. We're killing the moment by controlling our experience. From an awakened perspective, trying to tie up all the loose ends and finally get it together is death because it involves rejecting a lot of your basic experience. There's something aggressive about that approach to life. Trying to flatten out all the rough spots and imperfections into a nice, smooth ride. We want to be perfect, but we just keep seeing our imperfections. And there's no room to get away from that. No exit. Nowhere to run. That is when this sword turns into a flower. We stick with what we see. We feel what we feel. And from that, we naturally begin to connect with our own wisdom mind. Can we just sit quietly for a minute? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.